So for those of you who uh, may not be aware, we are in a series of messages uh, that we are working through a book called The Questions That Christians Hope No One Will Ask. It's written by a guy named Mark Middleberg, and uh, he was part of a survey of American Christians where they asked, what question do you least want people to ask you about your faith? And uh, so we've looked at uh, the first couple of answers, or the first couple of questions, first three questions actually, which uh, had to do with uh, creation and evolution and the existence of God, as well as the reliability of the Bible, which was last week. And to some extent, some of what we're talking about this week is, is at least partially related to or dependent upon what we talked about last week, so you might... If you, don't, if you haven't done so, you might want to go onto our website uh, at some point and listen to last week's message just to get kind of caught up and reinforced in, in what all's going on. Um, so, week four, part four of the book, we come to a, uh, a question that is probably more common than you might realize. And the reason I say that is, is we as Christians tend not to question this particular issue. We don't, we're not really comfortable bringing up the question uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which are actually good. Um, but it is a very common question, and I'll, I'll try to show you in what ways it's, it's sort of out there in our culture. But the question has to do with Jesus and what was he? Was he just a good guy who uh, kind of got made into something else by a group of people who had a lot invested in, in their devotion to him? Uh, or was he actually who he claimed to be? And, and are those claims valid? And that's kind of where this week's message is, is dependent on last week's message. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But uh, let me... Uh, so that's kind of the, the setup, and I want to take you through, before we read this, the first scripture that we're going to look at today, I want to take you through um, some of the approach to this question. Um, so I'm going to start with a little confession, right? Your pastor, some of you already know this, this is, this is public information, I'm happy to show you my college transcript if you want to see it, um, but I was a religion major in college, that was my major, which uh, is about as employable as an art major, right? It's really good stuff, your parents are really proud when you sign up for the religion major. And as part of the course of study, as you might imagine, every religion major had to take uh, a course called Bible, I think it was 201 or something like that, okay, Bible 201 or, you know, you get the idea, Bible 1, basic introduction to this guy, right, my grade in Bible 1, as a religion major, was an F. 
yep, yep, you should leave now, right? And I'm going to try to explain to you, this, this explanation had no traction with my parents. I'll just explain that right now, okay? But I'm going to try to explain to you why I got an F in Bible 1. Do not listen. It's not okay to get an F in any class ever, right? So I'm taking the class, and I'm at, I'm at a, a university that has a religion department that is staffed by former ministers of various mainline denominations. I naively assumed if you were a minister, you also believe in the basic components of Christianity, right? Like the Bible is the authoritative word of God, or Jesus was physically raised from the dead, or... I don't know, the virgin birth, the trinity, all these kinds of things, right? I was wrong. I was very, very, very wrong. But I didn't know that I was wrong. And so I'm sort of projecting onto my professors this idea, this perhaps naive idea of Christianity that it's, you know, it's about these kind of fundamental beliefs And they're trying to teach me this very anthropological explanation of where the Bible came from. And their school of thought is called higher criticism. That's that's the, the academic term for where these people are coming from. And we, or I, or however you want to look at this, Uh, are coming from what would be called a more orthodox perspective. We sort of, they would call us simplistic or, um, well, they'd call us a lot of things. We won't won't need to get into that, right? (laughs) Easily what? Easily led, yes. Religion is a crutch, and we're using that crutch to get through life or whatever. Um, the, the people over in the higher criticism camp, this is basically how they say the Bible got to where it is. They say, um, you know, different groups of, of influential people over history vying for power, primarily in Israel, uh, got control of the, the writing of the scriptures, and they inserted their perspective as an attempt to sort of influence and manipulate and control other people, okay? And so as you watch this weaving in of different political agendas, you can, you can sort of separate them out as a critical scholar and say, well, this came from the priestly class, this influence of telling people to go to the temple and give their tithe and all this kind of, that came from the clergy, right? And then uh, these passages about respecting your king, those would have come from a different category that was loyal to the kingship and you get the idea, right? Different groups vying for power. Um, <clears throat> so on the final exam in Bible 1, there was a, a, a little matching section, okay? And he would give me an excerpt from the Bible, and then he would say, identify what authorial influence contributed this passage to the scriptures, right? And in one section, 
all of the excerpts were from the first five books of the Bible. So instead of writing A, B, C, or D, I just wrote Moses in every blank, right? And you already know I'm a little stubborn, right? My, this is my, yeah, anyway. So I have some relatives in the room today, and they've known me for a very long time, and obstinance is a family quality that we hold very closely to. <laughs> um, I th- that was an amen, by the way, if you didn't. I can, I can interpret for Wally. So I got an F. It's a little embarrassing to stand before my congregation today and say I failed flat out Bible 1, right? But the reason I got an F was I could not really accept the premise on which the professor was basing his teaching. And so it was really more of a, uh, an F in protest in, in a way. Right? And I had to go back later and, and pass the class by, by examination. I wrote a paper or something that satisfied the guy, and I could graduate as a religion major, but still a little embarrassing. And, and really, in the paper, I just had to say that I understand what you think. doesn't mean I agree with it, but I understand what you think. And I, I sort of, in my obstinance, it took the exam as if I... If I fill this in the way it's stated, I'm saying that I believe this garbage, and I'm not going to do that, right? So, okay, all that to say, um, these are major issues out there. These issues of the divinity of Christ, um, the nature of the Bible, the nature of the person of Christ, these, these are real issues, and you will face these questions at some point or another, and, um, okay. So what, let's just, let's just sort of take an overview. What is the theory behind this question of was Jesus just a teacher or a prophet or a good guy? Um, you know, was Jesus, was he sort of a Gandhi? And then, in the centuries after his death, people kind of made him into something he never was or he never thought he was or he never intended to be. Um, there's, a great, there's a great story in the opening of the, of the chapter about Buddha, who was a Hindu and, and, and taught about enlightenment, and then he died a normal death, and then about 300 years later, people started elevating him to the status of deity. And if you you know, walk into a, a, a Chinese restaurant, you could see a, a golden Buddha, and they lay money or incense or food down in, in, on you know, his little belly or whatever and make wishes. Would Buddha have accepted that? No. That would have been whacked, right? He'd be like, what are you doing? That's crazy. But there is a, an anthropological observation that is valid that humans tend to deify some things. We have this tendency to want to do this. Is that what happened to Jesus? Was he just a Gandhi who kind of stood up to the Roman occupation and gained a lot of following and then his followers later made him into a god? Is that what happened 
to Jesus. Um, the theory goes like this. Jesus was a great teacher or a great prophet. He was a good guy. Um, and his followers embellished his memory after his death, kind of started adding to the legend of Jesus. And eventually, Jesus was made into the Son of God. Like this was some thing that his followers needed to make him become after his death. So that theory starts with a very human Jesus. He's one of us, and that's all that he is. But then, over time, we kind of blow him up into something larger than life. Well, let's pause here and ask another question. What are the facts? What are the facts? And by this, I mean the things that everyone agrees on, whether you're a critical scholar or an orthodox religious devotee. What What do we all agree on? Okay, There was a time when the critical camp would say things like, well, Jesus probably never existed. He was, he was a fabrication of a group of people who were trying to gain influence. Um, this was later re- sort of revealed to be as stupid as it sounds. Okay, uh, let me just pause for a second. If you're in the first century under the Roman Empire and you want to gain influence, don't tell people to worship someone other than Caesar. That will get you killed. It will not gain you influence. Okay, little uh, my time out. Okay, going back. Sorry, I do this periodically. So Jesus lived in the early first century. We all agree now there was a Jesus. He lived, and what else do we all agree on? That he was an unconventional but compelling teacher. He taught in ways that no one else taught, and as a consequence gained a rather substantial following. All scholars now agree on this. He was real, he taught weird things, but was very compelling at the same time. And for a while, critical scholars doubted that Jesus died on the cross. After about a century or or two centuries of doubting this, actually, um, the scholarly consensus is that Jesus was crucified under Roman authority in Jerusalem. That's not really something that even the critical scholars are disputing anymore. There's too much evidence. It's too um, substantial in in the historical record. Um, Then, the final thing we all agree on is that his followers came to believe, and I should say at some point, that he came back to life. There are some more recent critical scholars who have said things like, we get it. It, It's pretty clear from the historical record that his followers uh, thought something happened at at the point of the resurrection. We just don't know what it is. We don't know what happened. We, We know that they were convinced that it happened. Okay? Um, and there are still some critical scholars who might not fully agree with that statement, just to be fair. Uh, they would not uh, sort of give us that 
that much proximity to the resurrection. They would say that was something that was made up 100 years later. Okay? Um, All right. That's sort of the theory and summary, the facts that everybody agrees on. So what's the problem? What's the problem? If we all agree on the facts, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal has to do with when. When did his followers come to believe that he was the resurrected, living God of the universe, the Son of God, the actual second person of the Trinity? When, in whatever degree of formality or informality, did these ideas begin to form around the person of Jesus? Um, Because if it wasn't for a hundred years after his death, we have a problem, okay? We, we can admit that, right? If the, if the critical scholars are, were correct that he wasn't considered God until a long time after he's dead, we could just shut the doors and go play golf or something, okay? And, uh, all right. Let's take a look at his teachings, this idea that Jesus was a good teacher. Um, most of us know, you know, some of his unconventional teaching. He would tell parables. He would tell stories that, that sort of made a point. Or he would say things like, love your enemies. To which everybody would go, what? What? That's bizarre. Why would he say that? You know? Um, and one of my favorite movie scenes, there's two guys standing at the back of the Sermon on the Mount. They're at the back of the crowd, and they, they can't really hear. And one of them goes, this is a Monty Python deal if you don't know where I'm going with this. And one of them goes, uh, what, what, what did he say? And I goes, oh, I think he said, uh, blessed are the cheese makers. The other guy goes, well, what's so bloody special about them? He goes, well, I think it's meant to be generalized to the makers of dairy products at large. The other guy's like, oh. You can see him trying to get into the fact that these are obtuse teachings, that they're different, that this guy's distinct, right? Because who else really would say, blessed are the cheesemakers, right? Sorry, I went there. Um, Let's look at the teachings of Jesus and this question, okay, as did he claim to be God? Because it's one thing to walk around tossing out pithy little sayings that challenge people to reconsider their norms. It's another thing to claim to be God. And if I stood here and told you I am God, start worshiping me, please leave. Yeah, my daughters are like, not even close, <laughs> right? I mean, we all agree that would be whacked out. So I want to, I we talked a little bit last week about C.S. Lewis, and uh, he developed over par, the part of his writing what came to be called the great trilemma. You've heard of a dilemma. This is a trilemma. And he says, if you take the teachings of Jesus at face value, you, ha- you are faced with three possibilities. He was either a, a liar, a deceitful, wicked liar who was intentionally trying to fool people into thinking he was God and he would perform some magic tricks and people would go ooh and he would capitalize on that okay so 
Lewis says he's either a liar or he's flat out loony. He's just crazy and he thinks he's God um, or he's actually who he said he was. So if you take the teachings of Jesus at face value, you're left with three possibilities. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. And so the critical response to C.S. Lewis's great trilemma was very simple. Oh, well, we don't know if what Jesus said, if what the Bible says that Jesus said is actually what Jesus said. You see what they did there? Okay. So by calling into question the, the sayings and teachings of Jesus and his claims for divinity, um, the critical scholars sort of were able to move past C.S. Lewis's great trilemma. Um, you probably remember, well, I'm sorry, some of you remember, and it was 19... 88, and a Scorsese film came out called The Last Temptation of Christ. I never saw it, but I do remember the scenes on television of crazies out protesting at the theater and threatening boycotts and, you know, just people going berserk because the film depicted Jesus as having a wife, all right, among other things, other problems with the film. Um, And so Christians went nuts. And mm, two or three weeks later, Time Magazine did a cover story, Who Was Jesus? And the world, for the very first time, heard about a group of critical scholars that called themselves the Jesus Seminar. And these guys would get together, and they would... (laughs) I'm not making this up, and this is... I'm sorry. I, I have respect for the academic side of this. I really do. But this is where it gets, like, ridiculous. They would get together in a room, and they would put up a saying, a teaching of Jesus on the board, and they would all vote on whether it was legitimate, possibly legitimate, really, really gray as to its possibility, or flat-out blackball. And they had little marbles. I'm not making this up. This is not a joke. They had little marbles. They had red marbles for, yes, that he said that. So your red-letter Bible is kind of the idea there. And then they had pink marbles for maybe he said that. Then they had gray marbles for, hmm, I don't know, that's a little sketchy. And then they had black marbles for Jesus, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, would never have said that. Okay? So they sat in their little room and put their marbles on, I mean, literally. Uh, And they came out eventually with a Bible that every verse in the Gospels is highlighted. Red, pink, gray, or I think they use blue because black highlighting would be self-defeating, right? But that's the idea. Um, They were on the quest to find the historical Jesus. Who was the Jesus before the mythology took over our understanding of who he was? Who was that guy? Um, Most serious scholars no longer lend any real credibility to the Jesus seminar process. It was a little too subjective and not, it was, you know, they, these, are, these are well-researched, intelligent people, but there's too much presupposition in what they're doing. And, and anyway, okay, 
I think I'm losing some people. I'm going to try to. All right. Let's go to what Jesus had to say about himself. What was Jesus' title for himself? And if it makes you feel better, I know I forgot the apostrophe, the possessive apostrophe in your bulletin, just for those of you who are paying attention to those things. I don't know why I'm looking at you. I don't know. Um, But I got it on the screen, okay? So I caught it at some point in my review this morning. Um, How did Jesus refer to himself? Son of man, good answer, gold star. If I had one, you'd have it. Um, the most common title that Jesus applied to himself, and he did this 80-ish times among four Gospels, was Son of Man. And if you look at the Old Testament, there are about as many uses of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament as there are in the four Gospels. And in almost every case in the Old Testament, son of man just means human, like one who is human, okay? So maybe by using this title, Jesus just meant uh, that he was one of us, okay? He was identifying with us. Well, let's, uh, let's read a couple of passages um, where... One where Jesus uses this title in reference to himself, and another from the Old Testament where I believe Jesus is actually uh, quoting or drawing from. Let's go to Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 60 through 64. And here, Jesus is on trial before a Jewish council. And he's on trial for uh, blasphemy, essentially. He's been accused of blasphemy and... He knows that he's facing certain death if he's found guilty. So here we go. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Whoa. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Does it sound to you like in the Jewish context of the first century when Jesus called himself the Son of Man that it just meant, I'm one of you? No, you don't get, you don't get murdered for blasphemy for saying, I'm just like you, right? It's pretty clear from the passage he was making, a, a, an, I'm sorry, a, a statement of being, like who he was, in the fullness of that word. And that that statement got him condemned for blasphemy. In other words, he was saying, I am. He could have just stopped there and they would have torn their clothes and heaped ashes on their heads and crucified him or stoned him, 
or whatever. That would have been enough. But he went on. He elaborated. And he said, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power. And wow, that someone would think himself that esteemed to be right there at the right hand of God Almighty? Um, That's pretty arrogant. Does that sound like a nice guy to you? A good, wholesome, moral teacher? No, it doesn't. He's making a bold, blatant claim to deity. Uh, one of my favorite criticisms of this whole discussion is you, and you will, I've heard this around a campfire not long ago, and the one guy goes, well, Jesus only claimed to be God in the Gospel of John, and it was written later than all the other Gospels. The early Gospels don't show Jesus claiming to be God. Um, this is from Mark which is, by all scholars' agreement, the earliest of the Gospels. So written in closest proximity to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's pretty clear he's claiming to be God. There's no mistake. Um, So where does he get this term, son of man? I already said it's used a lot in the Old Testament just to mean human. Okay, But let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he says, I saw it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the passage Jesus was referring to when he called himself the Son of Man. And he very clearly says in his trial, I am the Son of Man, and I will sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Um, This was Jesus' title for himself. And let's talk a little bit about Jesus' uh, view of himself. How did he see himself? Did he see himself as a good guy, a good teacher, a prophet? Or did he see himself as the living son of God? Um, God incarnate, if you will. Let's jump to Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm sorry, I I jumped ahead of a point. Um, Jesus' view of himself was as one who had or possessed ultimate authority. Um, The kind of authority that only God has, especially in the Jewish mind. So, if he was a good teacher... And he said, you know, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you because of what you believe. Fine. But he doesn't say that. He says, because of me, quite literally is what he said, on my account. So this this is different. Do you get that? Jesus is saying that 
his authority is such that we're not in subjection to his nice moral teachings. We are in subjection to him as Lord, as an authority over us, that he is, in fact, God. Um, I'll ask it to you this way. Who did a prophet represent? God, right? And he says, when you represent me, the same thing will happen to you that happened to the prophets. That's a claim for divinity. Flat out, bar none, undeniable. He essentially says, God and I are the same. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Has there ever been a prophet who came to do anything other than elaborate or point back to the law of God? That's what prophets do. That's what teachers do. They point to and elaborate on the law of God. And in this case, Jesus says, um, I didn't come to abolish all these things. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, No other prophet ever claimed to fulfill the law of God. This is a bold, blatant claim of divinity, that he is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the promise of God. And, okay. So I think that covers um, Jesus' teachings on his own claim for divinity. And there are countless other verses, and we could, the Gospel of John is actually very overt in the way Jesus is projected as as being God. Um, I could take you to countless passages there and throughout the New Testament and the Old, for that matter. But here we are. Jesus thought he was God. He was teaching people that he was God. This is beyond sane if he was not, in fact, God. Um, What about the resurrection? Um, Okay, little point of advice for you, in case you needed it. Uh, When you finally get sick of your scatterbrained pastor, or maybe you move to another city, and you're looking for a church, all right? First question to the pastor, here it is. You ready? It's real simple. Do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And look him or her right in the eye as you ask the question. And if the answer begins with, well, move on. See ya. Okay? Um, If the answer begins with, let's see. Where shall we begin? Just move on. It's a real simple question. And all of Christianity 
hangs in the balance to that, the answer to that question. Was Jesus physically resurrected from the dead? What about the resurrection of Jesus? Did he come back to life? And by that, I mean physically. Did he physically come back to life? Um, let's start with something that Jesus said uh, that demonstrates that Jesus knew that he would die and rise again. Matthew twelve thirty-eight and 40. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Um, he knew what was coming. He predicted what was coming. And we can talk all day with our critics about whether these words are valid or legitimate or whatever. Um, we, we, we sort of dealt with some of that last week. These are, these are, of all the words in history, the words of our New Testament are the most historically established texts in all of antiquity. There's no close match to the reliability of these words in all of antiquity. And so, okay, again, we can go back and forth on that, but at the end of the day, I get a very clear sense that we're dealing with a man who knew what he was up to, who very intentionally walked before that Sanhedrin and said, I am. And not only that, but the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power for eternity. And he, he claimed to be the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so, Jesus knew that he would die and rise again, and his first followers staked everything on the resurrection. The Apostle Paul is writing to a young, troubled church in Corinth. And he's trying to basically straighten them out. And he says, um, you know, someone has come into your church and they've taught that there is no resurrection of the dead. That when you die, that's it. And so, you know, let Jesus be an inspiration to how you live this life and don't worry about what's beyond it. And Paul says, um, let me, let me explain something to you. And this is a guy who made his living putting Christians on trial and having them stoned to death because they were blaspheming the God of Israel. That was his job, to persecute and put out the church until he got knocked off his high horse, quite literally, and... Uh, the risen Christ appeared to Paul, he claimed, and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We got something we need to straighten out. I love you. I died to forgive you of your sins. And I want you to, to live for me. And Paul said, I get it. 
You are the fulfillment. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end. You are it. You are God. And he said this to this young struggling church. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I'm going to read a couple more passages than what you have printed there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul understood with abundant clarity that everything hangs on the physical, real resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you show me the physical bones of Jesus in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, we're done. It would be really hard to prove they were his, so I think I'm okay, but I actually mean that. If he is not physically resurrected from the dead, this is a joke. What are we doing here? I I don't have a lot of patience for playing church. It's not really my gig. And to be totally honest, what baffled me as an undergraduate when I encountered these professors who had been ordained ministers, and I later figure out, they never come right out and tell you, I don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, these people are not honest about what they believe. Because it's real hard to keep people in your church if you stand up and say, I don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a little, like, why are we here? What is the point? Here's what I know. That resurrected Christ found a stubborn, prideful, selfish jerk of a teenage boy. And he totally changed who I am. I can't deny that. And I guess you can throw every critical curveball you want. But I know I was forgiven. And I know that I'm loved. And ironically, there's not a stinking thing I can do about it. Because if, if he died to forgive me of my sins, whether I like it or hate it, it's done. That is the person who Jesus knew he was. He knew it. And he went to that cross intentionally 
and lovingly with you on his mind. Because he loves you. And that's really, at the end of the day, what drives this whole thing. It's the love of God through Jesus Christ. And I guess, I guess if, if someone has missed that in the midst of their scholarship, they've got to come up with a lot of arguments as to why this is not valid. Because they've been holding and studying the very word of God for their whole scholarly career and they missed that one simple truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The kids get it. Can you, will you pray with me? God, our Father, we are stunned by your love. Your relentless approach to the cross, knowing full well what was before you and wanting so deeply the restoration of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, the lifting of our heads, the hope of eternity that you established through your resurrection. Father, help us, for we are of little faith. We only have that which you give us. And for even that mustard seeds share, we are grateful that you pursued us, that your love defines us, and that you are alive forever with us because of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. One, two.